So last week, all right, last week we kicked off a new effort to preach through the book of Matthew. We got a little, we got fancy artwork. Garrett did a good job. It's, it looks kind of professional because we actually hired a professional this time. Well, we didn't hire him. We didn't pay him anything. All right, but we solicited the help of a professional. That's how you say that. All right, uh, and so last week we kicked off this new series through the book of Matthew, committed ourselves to what I think is a long haul effort. Uh, I'm thoroughly convinced though that, that God will bless that commitment. He's good like that. Uh, but we'll, we'll be spending a lot of time kind of in and out of uh, the book of Matthew over the next 24-ish months. Uh, we'll have some rhythms in there to take some breaks, but it, it, we're took, looking at two to three years probably. Uh, so, so I'll give the same recommendation that I do every time we start a book series. Be friends with Matthew. All right? Go read the book of Matthew. Reread the book of Matthew. Straight through in one sitting if you can manage it. Um, but make it a part of your regular rhythms of the week. Uh, uh, I hear um, that, uh, that journaling is a good thing. I also hear that Apple like put a journaling app on all of your phones in the latest software download. Uh, and I immediately deleted mine because I ain't going to do that. All right? But maybe that's good for you. Like journaling is a good thing. Uh, uh, every time I start a book series, uh, ESV has some, uh, some journals that have the text on one side and some places to write on the other. I always get one of those for uh, my, my eldest, my daughter, uh, because she's like that. My other one probably shouldn't put a journal in his hands, but whatever. There's lots of ways to make yourself friends with Matthew. Um, so if you weren't here last week, or maybe you've just slept since then and you don't remember things very well when, once you've gone to bed, uh, what's the general premise of the, the book of Matthew? What are we doing here? Well, Matthew is, is, is wrote a gospel. So uh, the apostle Matthew, we would say, uh, he's going to tell the story of Jesus' life and work by uh, showcasing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah King. All right, that's Matthew's goal. The, a king unveiling his perfect and otherworldly eternal kingdom who's proving his authority with wisdom and signs and wonders, securing a, a people for his kingdom through the redemption of the cross and then kind of gloriously ascending to his throne in his rightful throne in heaven, right? And I know that there's a lot in that kind of depiction of Matthew. There's a lot to, to try to wrap your head around there, but, but every one of those clauses in that really long runoff sentence was important, right? Right? Proving, uh, king unveiling his perfect and otherworldly eternal kingdom, proving the authority of his, uh, his authority through wisdom, signs, and wonders, securing a people for his kingdom through the redemption of the cross, and then gloriously ascending to his rightful throne. That's the book of Matthew in a nutshell. We saw last week that Matthew comes right out of the gate giving Jesus' genealogy. You remember it? Something that would have been incredibly important to Matthew's original Jewish audience. He makes it crystal clear. There's no, there's no debate about it. He makes it crystal clear who it is he's talking about. He's talking about the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you remember Abraham, right? Like the patriarch of patriarchs. He makes it, um, Abraham was the guy that, that, it was the pagan from the land of Ur that God plucked out of his paganism, that guy. And he, and he promised to, to bless the whole world through him, that guy. He's the one that, though he and his wife were physically unable to have any children, God still gave them a child of promise, that guy, that Abraham. Yeah, Matthew tells his audience that the promise made all of those years ago to the patriarch of patriarchs was finally being fulfilled. The blessing through Abraham's family had finally come. He also calls 
Jesus, the son of David. And you remember David, right? Maybe when you think of David, you think of a little shepherd boy slaying a Philistine ringer. Or maybe you think of the mighty men traveling around, patrolling the land of Hebron. When the Jews in Matthew's day thought of David, they thought primarily of the great king, the golden age of their people, the one who God promised would have an heir sit on his throne forever. Matthew says that that heir has stepped onto the scene and was ready for his coronation. Which leads us to the third title that Matthew gave Jesus last week in his genealogy. Called him the Christ. The prophesied Messiah would rescue his people from bondage and from oppression. The one who Isaiah said would establish his perfect justice and his righteousness forevermore. The one of whose peace there would be no end. That guy. So hear me clearly, Matthew is not soft-pedaling his way into anything here. He comes right out of the gate with it. He's not dabbling with mere illusions of grandeur for wannabe monarchs. No, he wants you to know with certainty. Matthew is here to tell you the story, the good news of Jesus. And this Jesus is everything you're hoping he will be, and actually far more than that. So you ready to get into our text for the morning? Still in chapter 1. If you're going to tell the story of the hero of the world, well, then you need to start with the origin part of the hero, right? Unless that is your movie studio, then you tell like a regular story, and then you come back like several years later to tell the origin story so you can make lots and lots of money. But we're not a movie studio. And that's not what Matthew's doing here. He's got to tell the origin story. So where did he come from? What were the circumstances that make him stand apart from the rest? And to do that, we're going to look at a text this morning that most people, I think, have never really encountered outside of the Christmas Advent season. That is, unless you've tried one of those read the New Testament in a year plans, then all you have to do is get through like day two. All right, But um, it's, it's my guess that most people don't really ever look at this text if it's not December. But perhaps looking at it outside of the time we typically look at it will help our cause today. So look at verse 18. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. All right, I've got to call time out automatically. All right, so Matthew is drawing attention here to the fact that Jesus' birth is going to be different than all of the other births that he's walked through in his genealogy. All right? He's already drawing that distinction. And you may have caught that distinction last week because he was already loading the gun for it then. All right? uh, we didn't discuss it last week, but Matthew tips that, that off exactly what he's doing with a subtle shift in his rhythm. Those of you who have a physical Bible, look back at verses uh, 15 and 16 for just a second. Right? Uh, so it says, Eliud, the father of Eliezer, the Eliezer, the father of Mothan, and Mothan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. So what's the pattern? I'm guessing just hearing it, you can, you can recognize it, right? The father of. Over and over again throughout that genealogy. The father of, the father of, the father of. If you're a King James fan, maybe you prefer the more refined sounding begat. That's the rhythm. But look at the next part. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. At the end of his genealogy, Matthew drops the pattern. He doesn't claim that Joseph is the father of Jesus. He's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. 
And so if your ears are trained to read genealogies, then you might hear that as some kind of scandal, right? There seems to be a break in the kingly lineage, and that break sounds like, I don't know, it might have some juicy details attached to it. But if your ears are trained to, to listen for messianic prophecy, then you might also be remembering passages like Isaiah 7 right about now. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's uh, another Christmas text we're familiar with, right? If you're one of the ones wondering and hoping that this Jesus just might be everything you hope this Jesus will be, the long-awaited promises are finally coming true, then you might, just might, hear something wonderful buried in that rhythm break. So back to verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All right, so there are a couple of absolutely mountainous things that we need to stop and discuss here. For starters, we need to see that there's a clear distinction between Matthew's account and what would have, at least to his original audience, uh, what would have been the incredibly familiar myths of the Greek and Roman demigods. And you're probably familiar with many of those stories as well. I know I am. Uh, But first century Jews in Matthew's day were surrounded by their temples. That's a different kind of knowledge, right? Um, Greek and Roman mythology are full of stories where promiscuous gods are, are constantly pursuing sexual relationships with mortals and then they produce children from those illicit relationships. Ergo, the demigods, figures like Achilles and Heracles and Orion. And, and if, if you've read those stories, they're always about those deities, usually typically Zeus slash Jupiter, but mostly they're always about one of the deities in that pantheon uh, uh, giving in to what is clearly a sin-fueled lust. Right? That's always what's going on of those stories. And the storytellers of those myths always seem really happy to oblige the more kind of risque parts of those myths. Their audiences are looking for that. Lean into them because their audiences take delight in those parts of the story. The false gods of the Greeks and Romans were no better than the people that that they represented. They were simply more powerful, eternal, The reason for that is because the ones who created those myths modeled those gods after their own likeness. They took the same sin-bent character in their own hearts and they gave them superpowers. And in both fiction and non-fiction, whenever sin-bentness is given more power, it tends to commit greater and greater sin. That's how that works. And so to read the myths of the Greeks and Romans, stories that were perpetually present in the ancient world of Matthew's audience, There's an expectation buried there that they're no better than you, only less restricted in their pursuits. And then Matthew comes along. And Matthew makes zero mention here of how exactly the Holy Spirit supposedly caused the conception of Jesus. It's just not there. It's absent from the story. And we need to understand that compared to the writings of their day, that lack of detail speaks just as loudly as a full accounting would have. Carries just as much information as the other stories. In a world that expects these stories to be scandalous, expects these stories to pique a twisted curiosity, Matthew's silent point is that this story is different. That this story is wholly unlike the stories they're already familiar with. The ones they've heard before. In Luke's account, We're simply told that the Holy Spirit would, quote, overshadow Mary. 
This wasn't the action of some lust-filled, morally agnostic deity. This was the miraculous work of God within human history. God caused Mary to conceive, and He did so with neither the form nor even the suggestion of some kind of sin-twisted, self-serving perversion. It's just not there. And so in direct, and what I would argue intentional contrast, to all of the stories that his audience would have heard of before, Matthew simply says, God did this. And that was the end of it. And there have been many over the course of 2,000 years of church history who have come to this story and assumed terrible things hidden in Matthew's silence. But I don't know, it's my suspicion, and I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but it's my suspicion that they do so simply because they don't have a category for a God who isn't twisted in the exact same ways that they're twisted. They're not bent by sin in the exact same ways that they're bent by sin. They've only ever encountered gods of their own image. And Matthew doesn't need to expand because there's nothing to expand upon. But I told you there was a second thing that we need to pay attention to in verse 18. We also also need to spend a moment explaining exactly what the relationship status between Mary and Joseph happens to be. Because it's weird. It's a little awkward for us. Um, Here in the English Standard Version, what I'm preaching out of, it says that they were betrothed but had not come together yet. Okay. In the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, it chooses to use the word engaged. The King James says espoused. And the NIV says that they were, quote, pledged to be married. And trying to hold all of those different kind of translations together is kind of awkward because all of those different word choices have slightly different nuances of meaning. Like there's different things going on there. So, so why did all the different translators do, why did they land in so many different places? And it's because there's not really a good modern example in the Western world of what's technically going on here. We don't have an analog. Mary and Joseph are kind of engaged, but also way more than that. And they're kind of married, but also a lot less than that. Uh, Jewish wedding customs in the first century almost looked nothing at all like our understanding of engagement and wedding ceremonies today. Uh, It was a much, much longer process, and there was significantly more commitment involved in the earlier stages. Uh, And that's going to sound confusing to us uh, because we built up engagement as this kind of magical wonderland time uh, uh, of this kind of period of waiting for the singular valuable moment of the ceremony, right? In our culture, the ceremony is what matters and engagement is this like, like happy place that leads up to that moment where, yeah, you got to deal with all the caterers and the, the nonsense, but then you have the wedding, right? In our culture, both legally and relationally, an engaged couple is not a single entity yet. They are two separate entities who are preparing to become a single entity when they finally say, I do, and somebody like me says, you're pronounced, Right? And yeah, our culture is blurring those lines more and more with what I think are some really unwise decisions, but I know every couple thinks that they're the exception to the rule, but we also live in a society where the most memorable rom-coms of our day all have a scene in there where somebody is making a last-second decision to bail at the altar. Like, that story doesn't make sense if we don't live in the culture that we live in. There's a reason why, as the officiant, I am required by the state to wait until after the ceremony to sign the certificate. Because even the state is wondering if you're going to follow through with this. So how then, how then would a first century Jewish couple approach this stuff? 
Well, culturally speaking, they leaned closer, much closer to what we would probably consider to be an arranged marriage. And I, I even need to carve out a caveat for that one as well, because like most people in our culture, when they hear those words, think of a caricature of something that doesn't actually exist and has probably never existed in the Jewish world. All right? So it, it would begin with the fathers of the two families discussing potential arrangements, even while the couple were still like younger children. You, you know, one of these days, uh, my Joseph might be a right for your little Mary. And they, they'd kind of breach that gap, and, and then they'd talk about it, and they'd continue talking about it, and they'd maybe start making what-if plans, right? And oftentimes it would go as far as engaging a couple years and years before they were ready to be married. Following that step, the two families would take several years to watch each other and get to know each other and measure each other up. And during that entire time, the girl and her family had full right to walk away. If she didn't like the guy, if she had reason to question his character, question whether he could actually provide for her, she could just say no, and that would be the end of it. And they'd have to go find some other arrangements somewhere. When marrying age finally came, teenage years for the girl, and usually early 20s or even late 20s for the guy, the couple and their parents would meet together to formalize the engagement into what would be called a betrothal, or at least that's our English word for it. Uh, they, they would formally draw up a contract to marry each other. The contract would be called a ketubah, right? The bride price would be paid at that moment from the groom to the bride's family. So money or property or livestock, whatever they agreed upon. And if the terms were agreed to, then the contract, the ketubah, would be ceremonially accepted by the bride and her parents. Again, if the girl wanted out before that moment, she was the one who held the power to say no, walk away. But once that ketubah was accepted, they were together. And I mean together. In fact, they would begin being called husband and wife, usually, by that point. However, they weren't as married as what we typically think of a married couple. After the ketubah, the man and the woman would go off their separate ways for a while, typically for more than a year as a long engagement. They each had responsibilities to get ready for their life together. The groom would prepare a, a room on, on to uh, prepare their future home, usually by adding a room onto their father's house, his father's house. And the bride would prepare herself. And all with the expectation that the groom would eventually return one day with a glorious party. They would celebrate with a giant feast and then go off to consummate the marriage. And at that moment in Jewish thought, the year-long wedding, not a singular event, but the year-long wedding of two individuals was now complete. But everything between that ketubah being accepted and that moment of consummation, they were together, just not together. And I mean that both physically and spatially. They both were still living in their respective parents' homes up until that point. So why does that matter for, for, uh, for our story? Like, what does that have to do with what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 1? Well, it matters for a couple of really big reasons. For one, it helps us actually understand what's going on in one of the most famous parts of the birth narrative. Um, Mary and Joseph having to travel to Bethlehem for the census... We learned about that in Luke's account, right? Um, and, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with Luke's account of the story. Oh, we, I read that story from the stage just a few weeks ago. We had a grand time. Um, you know, in case you've never really thought that through very well, if Mary and Joseph were merely engaged, as we understand engagement in our culture, it would be a weird thing to force them to travel 90 some odd miles to show up for a government count. So why is that a part of the story? Why do they have to show up for the census together? 
It's because of the, the ketubah. Settled and agreed upon. Regardless of their Jewish custom, in Rome's eyes, Mary and Joseph were already married. They may not have been living together, they may not have been together physically, but that didn't matter. The contract was final. Mostly married was enough for Rome to say, oh, you're a family unit, therefore show up at this place, at this time, and this date. The second reason that this formal, official, in-between stage is so important to understand is because Oh, it's going to play a direct influence on our next verse for the morning. Look at verse 19. And I mean a direct influence. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Listen, I don't, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you suddenly discovered that someone you loved and committed yourself to wasn't who you thought they were whether that was some form of infidelity or something else. But all of a sudden, the bottom drops out, right? And, and, and you just got blindsided by it. And, and you're not sure what to think right now or, or who to believe or who to listen to. You've got this swirling, kind of unnavigable mixture of anger and betrayal and probably a lot of wishful thinking that it can't actually possibly be true. And if you would just wake up from the nightmare, then it'd all go away. Or, you ever been there? Listen, I can imagine that Joseph wasn't willing to hear anything at all about whether or not God was the one who did this. Could you put yourself in his seat? No matter how desperately Mary tried to explain it to him, no matter what angle she took, I'm sure he wrestled with a thousand different versions of emotions that I've never been able to tap into. But hear me, church. What we see here tells us a whole bunch about who Joseph is. We don't get to learn much about Joseph from the biblical account. For whatever reason, unlike Mary, he's not in the picture uh, when, later on when Jesus is an adult. Um, it's just speculation, but our guess is that he's probably because he's, he's died by, this point, uh, by that point. So we don't know much about Joseph. Certainly less about him than we do about Mary. But what we see here in Matthew 1, what we see here it speaks volumes speaks volumes. We're told that he resolves to divorce Mary quietly so that he could protect her from shame. All right? And that, that, that might seem to some as an overreaction or the wrong move and all those kinds of things. And so, um, but by Joseph's estimation, he doesn't buy the story yet. He's ready to walk away. In his eyes, Mary has been unfaithful. He's ready to walk out the door. And because of the formality of their betrothal, because of the ketubah, walking away requires a formal certificate of divorce. There's a lot more involved than simply calling off the wedding. A lot more involved than canceling the, the cater and maybe losing the, the deposit on the venue. It would have been expected and also quite natural in their culture for Joseph to make an example out of her. In fact, they live in a culture where he actually had the legal right to have her publicly stoned for her unfaithfulness. But he cares for Mary. He don't want to do that. Even in his short-sighted understanding of the story, he's been hurt by her, but he refuses to hurt her in return. He will not do it. He knows that they can't move forward as a married couple. She has apparently been involved in something that ruins all of that. 
that he will not bring harm to her. And I think there are two absolutely massive things that we need to pay attention to out of this dynamic. One, Joseph is a man of gentle character. Church, it is good and right to see that, and I think even to celebrate it. We cannot miss that. He is attempting to care for Mary, even as he thinks that she has sinned gravely against him. But secondly, secondly, look at, look at God's sovereign care and provision for Mary and Jesus. Joseph is ready to walk away. And in his eyes, he's got every reason to. But there's an official process he has to go through first. And he's trying to do it slowly and quietly, which means rather than immediately burning down the bridge, which is probably what I would do in that situation, no, there's, there's time for God to change Joseph's mind. There's a window to educate him on, on why he doesn't understand what's actually going on. That's what happens in verse 20. Look at it. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, he will save his people from their sins. So, so God sends Joseph a messenger in a dream, an angel of the Lord, we're told, and that there's all kinds of speculation about uh, who this messenger is. The best theory is that it might be Gabriel because he was the one that got to go tell Mary. He seems to have this special place, but Matthew doesn't actually give us a name, all right? He doesn't tell us who. But Mary, uh, excuse me, Matthew does tell us exactly what this messenger said. And man, he speaks right to Joseph's greatest fear. He speaks right to it. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know that you're laying there asking all the what if questions. But you don't have to worry because God really did do this. He really is behind this. Don't be afraid to follow through on all of the provision for your family that you are already getting ready to do. It is the Lord who worked here. And he's working for something wonderful. And notice that the angel calls him son of David. Son of David, right? That, that's not his physical father. Son of David. A reminder to Joseph that though they live in dark days, there's still royal lineage coursing through his veins, laden with God's good promises for his people. And one of the biggest of those promises is the coming of Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins. Okay, but where's that promise found? Well, Matthew's happy to tell us in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Hey, look, there's that Isaiah passage. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God himself is coming. He, God himself was going to act to accomplish all of these things, right? Yes, there is deep and wonderful character coursing through the two main human actors in this story, Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are full of humility and they're full of character. They're full of resolve, traits that I think ought to be emulated by God's people everywhere, but as great as they are, do not misread this story. Neither of them are the hero here. Neither one of them are the hero of this story. God is the one fixing the problem of our sin and separation. And his plan was in place long before Mary and Joseph were around. 
God is the one stepping into human history, in human form, to save a human people for himself. And what we need to see here, church, what we need to see here is that though both that through both the cultural customs and through the character of the individual players, God is the one who carried out a sovereign plan to care and provide for the eternal Son of God when he came in utter vulnerability. The plan was in place long before Mary and Joseph stepped onto the scene, but he used them in an incredibly special way. The Word made flesh was cared for and provided for. But just how did God provide? Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Christians tend, at least it's been my experience, Christians tend to to be more familiar with Luke's telling of the birth narrative. And, and for good reason. It's a really good story, right? It, it's longer. It gives a lot more detail. Uh, there, there are no shepherds in Matthew's account for the children's play. Like, you, you gotta use Luke. There's a reason why I read Luke's account most years during our Christmas Eve service. It's because it's, it's just, it's, it's a really good account. Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective. That's why we're most familiar with it. It's a good perspective. It's an easy story to fall in love with. Character and humility come to a glorious head in God's good plan. It's a wonderful story. But as we've seen the last couple of weeks now, Matthew tells the story from the perspective of Joseph. I don't know if you've ever caught that. Same character, same humility, coming to a glorious head in God's plan. It's a pretty good story. But there's, a, there's an extra piece here that, man, I just adore absolutely have fallen in love with. Mary's story is all about being a willing servant of the Lord through motherhood of a child that belonged to her. But Joseph's story, it's all about being a willing servant of the Lord through adoptive fatherhood. I don't know, I don't know what rumors might have been swirling around Mary and Joseph in the handful of months that led up to the birth of Jesus. I can imagine some things, especially in a small town. I grew up in a small town. I'm sure there were things that were said to them and about them. I don't know what their closest friends had to say about any of it, what they might have tried to talk them into or out of, or if suggestions were ever made to handle it quietly. That marriage feast that they were waiting on and getting ready for, I don't know if that was delayed or if it was rushed or I don't know, it may never have happened at all. Other than Elizabeth, we have no account of how Mary and Joseph's extended family responded to this situation. Were they embraced? Were they cut off and pushed away? None of the gospel writers choose to tell us. For whatever reason, God didn't see fit to include that in the story. But what we do know, Church, what we do know is that after Joseph gets confirmation from God, a combination of his character and his trust in the Lord causes him to stand tall and do what was necessary to provide for Mary and Jesus. He got up and he said, okay, let's get to work. And he went to work. And our God used his character and used his trust for both our good and the good of the whole world. Like was mentioned earlier, this week is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a week that 
Christians, Christians all over the country pay special attention to protection of life issues. And, and what we need to see here is that one of the most wonderful stories in the Bible has adoption at its core. That's not an accident. Joseph stood tall and he took responsibility for a child that didn't belong to him. And he had no real responsibility for. And he had a, a legal and even a moral right to say, no, that's not my job. That's not on me. But he took on that job at great cost to himself. The means by which the Father raised up a human family for the eternal Son dwelling among us, God's sovereign care to plan for and provide, it is through the character-filled ownership and self-sacrificing responsibility of adoption. And don't, don't hear the wrong things in this. Joseph is still not the hero of the story. He was a sinner in need of a savior. God was the one working in that story. But humility and obedience oftentimes means getting up and saying, okay, let's get to work. I don't know what avenues you have in front of you for exploring or maybe helping others explore things like adoption or foster care or pregnancy resource centers or hospice care or all of those things. But man, I'd love to help you figure out whatever steps are in front of you and help you do them. I think our God is glorified in that. I want to bet that there are a thousand more opportunities available to you than any one of us are paying attention to. I also know that it's going to take lots of character-filled ownership and self-sacrificing responsibility to accomplish all that needs to be accomplished this side of heaven. It won't happen without it. But perhaps, I don't know, perhaps, the means by which our God brings healing and redemption to many in our specific region is through his people seeing the need and getting up and saying, okay, let's get to work. Regardless of the social and or cultural costliness of it all. But what do we do with this stuff this morning? Right? We, we got maybe some big aspirations. What do we do with it today? How can we respond to our text even this morning? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'd love to introduce you to him. I really would. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of their sin, that they're, that they're owed the just and righteous punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says, that, that God makes us alive through Christ by his grace. How does he do that? Well, God sent his son. Jesus, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that, that you and I aren't able to live. We can't be pleasing to God in morality. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in our place to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. And I'd love to be helpful to you. I'm gonna, in a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song again. But we set that time aside as a, uh, to, to give folks a place to respond, to translate the head stuff into some kind of action thing. Hope you take advantage of it. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? What, what do we do? How can we respond? The same way we always do, by repenting of sin and by leaning into what God reveals about himself in 
the text in front of us. And this week, man, I think God is showing us that his good plans typically involve character-filled people and means. Not because he's unable to accomplish what he wants to accomplish without it. He doesn't need us. We should not be misunderstood here. But because of his goodness, and because of his graciousness, and because of his tender care for his children, he graciously invites us along to, into his work. We get to play a role that we would not otherwise play because daddy lets us come along. And in so doing, we get a front row seat to the, to the goodness of him being put on display for everyone to see. I don't know about you, but the the longer I get to hang out, the more I realize I want as many of those tickets to that front row seat as I can get. So let's get up, say okay, and get to work. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. For some of you, that maybe that's by formally joining our church family. You've been here for a while and never pressed in, but now God's making it clear it's time to press in. Time to take the next step. Okay, let's talk. Maybe for you, it's that you need to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. You've never done that before. and It's finally time to do what he said to do. Okay, we can talk about that too. Or maybe God's been calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, whether that's like as a real deal missionary or just someplace that desperately needs a few more healthy church members. Right? You just press in and be the kingdom in those places. I, I don't know. I'd love to help you figure out what those next steps are. I know that I would adore getting to work towards figuring out whatever the pathway is. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a story usually read at Christmas. Thank you that you are the God who uses things like adoption to fulfill your plans to redeem a world and adopt us as your own. May days like today be a reminder of your goodness and your grace towards us. May they be maybe even a catalyst towards some better things. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them this morning? Call people into your kingdom today for, your good, for our good and for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.